Second reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 9. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of God. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present in the reading and in the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if ever there was a man who was concerned about his personal salvation, if ever there was a man who wanted to make sure that he was right with God, it was the Apostle Paul. Now, of course, not everyone is concerned about these kinds of things. Lots of people go through life completely indifferent to the things of God. Lots of people, even people who believe that there is a God, act as if there isn't a God. We call them functional atheists. In some kind of abstract way, they believe there's a God out there somewhere, but Nothing in how they act or think or how they live their lives would give you any clue that they think that one day God will hold them accountable for how they've lived. Have you ever been cruising along the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you come around a bend in the road and all of a sudden you spot a highway patrol car parked over in the grass? What do you do? Well, instinctively, you tap the brakes, and you check your speed, and after you pass the patrol car, you glance in your rearview mirror to see if he's following you. Now, sometimes, when you pass those parked cars, you realize there's no one inside. They've just parked the car there to get people to slow down, and sometimes that works. But what if you knew that all the patrol cars parked on the side of a highway were empty? What would you do? You might just keep on cruising at whatever speed you like, knowing that no one's going to ever give you a ticket. That's how a functional atheist lives. He knows there's a God abstractly out there somewhere, but he's not going to let that slow him down. Well, that certainly wasn't the Apostle Paul. Paul was always very conscious of God. He was always very concerned about where he stood with God. He always wanted to make sure that he had God's approval and God's blessing, which is not a bad thing to want. Paul was born into a good Jewish family. He was devout. He was careful in his religious duties. He was a member of the Pharisees, a very conservative, very strict group within Judaism. 
And he was an extremely well-trained scholar of the Jewish scriptures. He didn't do any of this for money or for fame. He did it because he wanted to be right with God. He wanted to be a righteous man. He wanted to be a keeper of the law. And he knew that if he were a righteous man, that God would look upon him with favor. And that God would bless him in a way that the world could never bless him. In the New Testament, we first learn about Paul or Saul in the Acts of the Apostles. And there we see him actively persecuting the followers of Jesus. He does that, he did that, because he believed that the followers of Jesus, all of whom were Jews at that time, that they were breaking God's law in a whole bunch of ways. And it wasn't enough for Paul to be righteous, a law-following man himself. He as a faithful Jew, also wanted to make sure that his nation, the Israelite nation, was a righteous nation and that they would not tolerate violations of God's law. He thought that the followers of Jesus were wrong. And he wanted to make sure that they didn't spread their wrong teachings to other Jews. And so he persecuted them. And he arrested them and he had them brought to Jerusalem for trial. And he was responsible for the death of some Christians. All because he wanted to be right with God. What higher good can there be than to be right with God? What higher good can there be than to know that God approves of what we're doing? That was the Apostle Paul. Well, really, I mean Saul. Because he wasn't Paul yet. He was still Saul of Tarsus, a very devout man, a a man deeply concerned about where he stood with God. It is possible to earnestly believe something and still be wrong. It is possible to be honestly mistaken. Now Judas, a very different character, Judas betrayed Jesus for money. Judas arranged for Jesus to be arrested in exchange for silver. But Paul, or Saul, had people arrested because he thought it was the right thing to do. And while Judas is described in Scripture as a complete scumbag, a traitor to his own friends, the Bible never says that Saul's heart was in the wrong place. The problem is we can't always trust the human heart. Because sometimes the human heart is wrong. Your heart can earnestly believe something and still be mistaken. Now, I know that's not what Hollywood teaches you. I know that's contrary to everything you ever learned in your course on Disney princess theology. But it is what the Bible teaches. And so we have to make a choice. Will we believe corny Hollywood movies that... Following your heart always leads to a good outcome. Or will we believe the word of God, which says things like this, the heart is deceitful above all things. And Proverbs 3, 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I don't think we can fault Paul for having bad intentions or for being dishonest, but we can say that he was just wrong. He was wrong about Jesus. That is, until Jesus showed up and set him right. 
And here's the truth that I want you to hear this morning. Each one of us needs for Jesus to show up in our lives and set us right. Saul was no worse than the rest of us. All of us need for Jesus to show up in our lives. And if God shows up in that remarkable, compassionate, and merciful way, what happens is we turn around. We go from one way of thinking to another way of thinking. We call it conversion. We call it being born again. One day you're running down the road as fast as you can, thinking that you have it all figured out, thinking that you know that you're doing things the right way, and then Jesus shows up. And we see the error in our ways. We see that we were wrong, even though we thought we were right. And when that happens, that is a compassion and a mercy from God Almighty. The message from Jesus that turned Paul, Saul, around is what we call the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what is this gospel? The gospel is the message that righteousness or right standing or being right with God or being square with God, that righteousness is not a matter of keeping God's law. Because no one really does keep that law but rather is the result of faith in Jesus Christ. If being right with God were the result of how perfectly we lived our lives, we would all be damned. But in the gospel, a different way to be right with God is revealed, a way that is drenched in compassion and in mercy. Paul writes in Romans 3, 21 and 22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Before Saul met Jesus, his entire hope rested on his very careful keeping of God's law. It rested upon human will and exertion. Saul worked really hard at that righteousness and he wanted other people to do the same. And he believed that Jesus and Jesus' followers were tearing down the law and so he persecuted them. But then in a flash, in a moment, he runs smack dab into Jesus who says, stop. Stop thinking that your attempts at Good behavior are going to make you right with God. Because your good behavior isn't really that good after all. Stop thinking that human will will make you accepted in God's sight because your will has very mixed motives. Stop thinking that your exertion will make you right with God. Because most of the time you're coasting. And you're not making an effort at all. Stop thinking that you're square with God because of how hard you've worked to please God. Because even your hardest work isn't really that good. At first, running into Jesus sounds like bad news. I've been trying to please God sometimes, but not all of the time if I really tell the truth. But I've been trying to please God. And now you're telling me that it's not good enough? That it's not going to work? You're telling me that God won't be pleased with my on-again, off-again, occasional spotty efforts at goodness and righteousness? 
that it's not going to make the grade? Do you think I should try a little harder? Maybe I can join an accountability group that will keep me on track more often. Maybe I should get that righteousness app for my Fitbit so I can check all my righteousness and all of my good deeds. See, God, one billion... 967,349,000 meritorious acts. Is that going to be good enough? The gospel which begins by declaring that none are righteous, no, not one. The gospel sounds like bad news until we realize that God in his mercy and in his compassion offers us freely what we can't do by ourselves. Some place down in our bones, if we're not complete devils, some place down in our bones, we want God's approval. And what the unkeepable standard of the law teaches us is that we're not going to get that approval by ourselves. We're not going to pass the test by ourselves. We're not going to be counted righteous and receive eternal life by ourselves. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. As a Pharisee, Saul tried to pass the test. Saul tried to live so perfectly that God would be satisfied. But Jesus, in his preaching, revealed that keeping the outward demands of the law wasn't really what God wanted after all. Jesus, in his preaching, Reminded his hearers of what the Old Testament prophets had been saying all along. That what God wants is not sacrifice and religious festivals. What God wants is a broken and contrite heart. Because until the heart changes, the rest is just a show. Because until the heart changes, there is no authentic relationship between us and God. The law says don't commit adultery. But Jesus taught that Even lust in our heart is equivalent to adultery. The law says don't commit murder. But Jesus taught that road rage, even if no one gets hurt, is a capital offense. And so Saul, who had pinned his hope on his good behavior, on his scrupulous keeping of the finer points of the law of Moses, Saul, who was counting on God's approval because he was careful about the external behaviors without checking the attitudes of the heart, Saul finds the teaching of Jesus to be absolutely crushing to all of his hopes. Jesus raises the standard of the law so high that someone like Saul doesn't make the cut. Jesus internalizes the demand of the law. And Saul knew that his stony heart was far from God. None are righteous, no, not one. That's the first half of the gospel. But we need to hear the other half as well, or at least I do. That what human will and exertion cannot accomplish, the will of God can. That brings us strangely to Moses and to Pharaoh 
and to the story of the Exodus, which was part of our first reading this morning, to the story of the salvation of the nation of Israel, Paul writes, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Saul's conversion from being a man who persecuted to the, persecuted the church to being a man who carried the gospel to the Gentiles at the end of the earth was not the result of Saul's will or exertion, but it was the result of God's mercy. God chose to have mercy on Saul. And Saul went from being a hater of Christ to being a lover of Christ. We don't become Christians because we work really hard at becoming Christians. We become Christians because God has mercy on us and he turns us around and he gives us the faith that we need to trust in Jesus rather than trusting in ourselves and trusting in our righteousness. If you ask the question, why did God have mercy on Saul who was so wicked toward the church and not have mercy on Emperor Nero, for example, then you're asking a question that God doesn't answer. Well, he does answer it, but maybe you won't like the answer. Here's what God says. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God chose To have mercy on Paul. I think it's important that Paul, in trying to explain the mystery of God's election, reminds us of the story of Moses and Pharaoh and the exodus of the children of Israel. In his own life, of course, Paul knew perfectly well that his conversion was not something he was responsible for. You remember how the story goes. Paul is running at top speed. Headlong, he's racing toward Damascus with the intention of killing Christians. And then, wham! He runs into Jesus, who he's not looking for. Not something Paul had planned on. Not something Paul had willed. Not something Paul had worked to have happen. Jesus knocks him off his donkey. He blinds him. He totally turns him around in the same way that Paul was not responsible for his first birth. Paul's mother did that. He was not responsible for his second birth. Jesus did that. All right, but what does this have to do with Pharaoh? I have this suspicion that Paul saw in himself an echo of Pharaoh. I have a suspicion that Paul saw that the way that God dealt with Pharaoh was the other side of the coin of how God dealt with him. Give me a minute to lay out this theory. Like Pharaoh, Paul oppressed the people of God. But unlike Pharaoh, Paul received God's mercy. Pharaoh oppressed God's people by forcing the Israelites to not only make their daily quota of bricks, but also to gather the straw that they needed for those bricks. It was an impossible demand. There wasn't enough time in the day to do it. There was no way for the Israelite people to satisfy the demands of the king of Egypt. Now Paul, in like manner 
in his pharisaical philosophy oppressed God's people by an ever more stringent interpretation of the law of Moses. Not only were they tithing the firstborn of their flocks, but they were also tithing the, the dill and the cumin in their kitchen gardens. There was no way for the Israelite people to satisfy the demands of the king of heaven under this pharisaical view. But here's the truth. God's intention for his people is always freedom and not slavery. God's intention for his people is always that they be in a loving relationship with him, not that they be far away. And so God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let these people go. But even before Moses goes to Pharaoh, even before Moses unleashes ten plagues on Egypt, God says to Moses, this is back in Exodus 4.21, back at the very beginning of the story, God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Each time Moses demands the release of the Israelites, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh, with his hard heart, rejects the request. And Pharaoh unleashes a plague. First the Nile turns to blood. Then frogs overrun the land. Then biting insects harass the Egyptians. Then the livestock all gets boils. Then hail destroys the crop. That's the passage that we read this morning. Then the locusts come and eat all that's left. And then darkness covers the whole land. And finally the firstborn in every household are struck dead. And between each plague, Moses goes back. And he says the same thing, let my people go. Sometimes it almost seems like the king of Egypt is ready to do it. But God hardens his heart again. Finally, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh does let them go, but it isn't too long after that they're gone, after they're gone, that God again hardens Pharaoh's heart changes his mind, and he sends the army out into the wilderness to chase down the Israelites, to bring them back, and you know how that story ends. The children of Israel escape across the Red Sea while the entire army of Pharaoh drowns. It's dramatic stuff. And God explains why he does it this way. He explains it in our reading this morning from Exodus 9.16 where he says, So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm going to drown the entire army of Egypt so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. If God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart, if the Israelites had just left when Moses first asked, I guess that we wouldn't even know the story of the Exodus today. But God chose to not have mercy on Pharaoh. And the drama of that confrontation between the most powerful man on earth and the king of heaven ensured that the whole world would know who is in charge. It ensured that the whole world would know that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is Lord over all. All praise and glory be to the one God, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen. But let's shift now to Paul. Paul, the great oppressor of the church, 
the persecutor of the church, the oppressor of his own, of his own people, Paul becomes the great evangelist of the church. He takes the message of the gospel far beyond the land of Israel. God also had a confrontation with this enemy of the people. But this time, in his sovereign grace, God chooses to show mercy and to make an enemy into a friend. The result is exactly the same. The name of God is proclaimed in all the earth. It is a great and a fearful mystery. But it is the God's honest truth that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And if this morning, in God's mercy, you hear God's gospel, I pray that you will listen and respond. If this morning, in God's mercy, you feel convicted by your attempts at self-righteousness or self-justification, I pray that you will let God accomplish in your life what you can't accomplish by yourself. Our hope is in Christ alone. Our salvation is in Christ alone. And if you hear the Master calling you today, I pray that you answer his call. Let us pray. Father God Almighty, you are great and wondrous beyond all understanding. And you were here before this world was here. You were here before the nations were made. You were here before there was a Pharaoh or a Paul. Lord God, you are Lord over all space and all time. Lord, we recognize your sovereign reign in this world. We recognize that you are God and we are not. And we thank you that you are also a compassionate and a merciful God. And we thank you that you have made the gospel known to us. We thank you that you have given us the capacity to respond to that gospel, to receive it in faith. We pray this morning that we would cling to Christ and not cling to our own righteousness. We pray that we would cling to the righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ rather than clinging to the righteousness of our own deeds. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and in our attitudes and in our actions. Lord, we confess that all too often we live as though uh, there will be no accounting, but we pray that we would be a people who are attentive to your law and attentive to your calling. Lord, may we be more and more like you, even as we follow you more and more closely. This we pray in your name. Amen.